Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Howard David Live. We get it going on a Wednesday. I don't know if I should introduce this gentleman by, is he the host of uh, Back on the Record, or is he the voice of the Spirits of St. Louis? Which way are you more comfortable, Bob? Well, without the Spirits of St. Louis, I don't know what else I would have been the voice of. That's what got got me started, unless you count the Syracuse Blazers in the old Eastern Hockey League for one season. So the ABA and the old EHL are both uh, dear to my heart. He is Bob Costas, a longtime member of NBC Sports. Uh, back on the record, uh, I'm sure you have a hand on who the guests are and so on. How much input do you get from uh, people that are part of the production? Well, it's a collaborative effort, but obviously what I'm inclined to do or the suggestions I make might carry a little bit more weight. But one of the reasons you want to be at a place like HBO, if there even is another place like it, because it's always been a broadcaster and performer's paradise. They're so supportive uh, of all the people that, uh, that they decide they want to work with. So I'm surrounded by very good people, some of whom were HBO hires, others were brought in because I suggested it. Uh, so it's a it's truly a collaborative process, and there's a whole lot of mutual respect there. But I guess I have the veto power in the end. At the end of the day, uh, there's got to be a guest or two that stands out in your memory that made an impact, whether it was maybe something they revealed, or they made you laugh, or they made you cry. Who answers that description? Well, if we're just talking about back on the record, where we've only had six shows so far, because a lot of it has been kind of uh, messed up because of COVID and working around all of that sort of thing. Uh, the very first guest we had was an easy one. It wasn't an inspired booking, but I knew it would turn out well, which was Charles Barkley, where he's <laughs> both he's insightful, he's provocative, but you know, he's going to be funny. So that's where we started. It was a layup, but it was an obvious move to make. So Barkley was great for us. Uh, on that same show, Ali Raceman, and it was timely because uh, the Tokyo Olympics were going on and Simone Biles had just withdrawn so Allie had great insight into that and she was also among those um, who testified movingly uh, about sexual abuse in gymnastics so uh, we spoke with length at length with her uh, and she's very well spoken and very intelligent so on that first show I think we kind of established the sort of tone we wanted to have entertaining yes but also uh, some journalistic element to it You've you had very strong opinions about Olympics uh, you know, from a political perspective, uh, and you mentioned Ali Raceman and the lawsuit that's involved and so on. Uh, where does that stand right now? The lawsuit? Yes. Well, the, the, the perpetrator is in jail and will be for the rest of his life, and supposedly there are ongoing um, reforms uh, with U.S. gymnastics. There's been changes in uh, their administration. Uh, pushing for more transparency. Uh, I can't say that I can exactly tell you where things stand now, but the movement 
You've always had a passion for baseball. Why? You know, when I, you're of the same generation, when I was first becoming a sports fan in the late 50s and early 60s, baseball was still the unquestioned national pastime. And while I'm a fan of multiple sports, baseball was the one that mattered most to me. And from a broadcasting standpoint, especially at that time, there's just something different about baseball broadcasting. At that time, radio had a certain primacy. It still matters, but it doesn't have the same kind of impact that it did then. And many of the greatest baseball announcers were radio broadcasters of baseball. Red Barber, Vin Scully, Mel Allen. When the Mets came into existence when I was 10 years old, Lindsey Nelson and Bob Murphy. Uh, right out of college, I wind up in St. Louis. You mentioned the Spirits. I'm at the same station as Jack Buck, one of the greatest of the greats. So the way a great baseball broadcaster could bring his audience in and the relationship, especially for the local announcer, the relationship that that announcer has with the fan base of that team is unique in all the sports. It still exists today. But when you and I were younger, Howard, it was a stronger connection. Interesting you mentioned um, uh, Lindsey Nelson. When CBS Radio had the rights to Major League Baseball, I got a chance to do a bunch of games. And the second guy I was paired with was Lindsey Nelson. Now, put it in perspective. I'm getting ready to work with one of the legends of the game, one of the legends of broadcasting. And all I kept thinking to myself was, just don't screw it up. Right. <laughs> so uh, I got to work the middle three innings. Uh, he worked the first three and, and then the last three. And we had dinner the night before. And I pumped him with a whole bunch of questions because I wanted to make sure that he was comfortable working. He's working with me. I mean, I'm nobody to him. But yet he treated me with the same respect he would treat uh, anybody else uh, that's worked for 30 or 40 years in the business. And I told him afterwards, I really appreciated that. He was a lovely Southern gentleman. And it's interesting that a good number of the great broadcasters of that earlier era came out of the South with voices that kind of dripped a little honey. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Mel Allen, Red Barber, Lindsey Nelson, uh, Ernie Harwell. Uh, that works especially well, I think, in a baseball setting. Uh, we're talking with uh, Bob Costas, award-winning broadcaster for many, many years. Uh, uh, when I was doing the Milwaukee Bucks, uh, I was asked to come on a talk show before uh, the broadcast, and the host asked me about baseball, and I said that I thought baseball was in a bad state. He said, why? And I said, well, for the life of me, I don't understand how one league has a designated hitter and the other league doesn't. Well... Keep in mind, it's in Milwaukee. Who lives in Milwaukee? Bud Selig. Bud Selig is driving in his car. He hears the conversation and calls the radio station, asked if he can come on. And they asked me what I thought. I said, bring him on. He came on and he started to lambaste me, Bob, uh, about my take on baseball and so on. I said, Mr. Selig, with all due respect, am I wrong in my argument? And he said, that's not the point. And he went on and on, Bob. I felt like I was being lectured by my high school English teacher. He, he crucified me. You know, Bud is a very nice man. He truly is a nice man. Uh, he can get a bit defensive about the game he loves and also about some of the positions he had taken as commissioner. And I think sometimes, I'm not going to psychoanalyze him here, but my feeling has been, observing him over the years, he feels as if 
if his intentions were good, as they almost always were, then he deserved the benefit of the doubt. But in his position, he's the guy who has to answer, whether it's Roger Goodell or Adam Silver or Gary Bettman or Bud Selig or now Rob Manfred. They have to answer legitimate questions or legitimate opinions and critiques uh, that surround their game. That's part of what comes with the territory. Uh, So I would have wished, this is the first time I heard about the scenario you just laid out, I would have wished that Bud's approach would have been, hey, Howard, heard what you said. Here's my perspective on it. And then you Mm. get a good debate going. Well, the next day I get a call from Herb Cole, who owned the Milwaukee Bucks, United States Senator, and a childhood friend of Bud Selig's. He called me and he said, I heard uh, the broadcast last night, and then I got a scathing call from Bud Selig. Would you do me a favor? I said, anything, Senator, whatever you want. Would you meet he and I for lunch? And I said, absolutely. So I went to lunch. The, the order wasn't even taken yet by the waiter, and he starts after me again. I said, hold it, hold it. I came here to have lunch with you and reason with you. It's my opinion that baseball using DH in one league and not in the other is where I stand on it. You have a responsibility as commissioner for the state of the game. I recognize that. I'm not attacking you personally. This is my opinion. Well, it was like, I had, like he hadn't had any ears. He started after me again, and Herb called to his credit stopped in, uh, stepped in rather, and said, uh, this is not what this lunch is about. And that was the end of that. But it continued to haunt me for days after that. I'm wow. getting chastised by the commissioner of baseball. Well, you know, I, I've had better experiences with Bud than, than you did. Uh, sometimes Bud and I disagreed, and sometimes uh, he wanted to weigh in with his point of view. Uh, but he never uh, harangued me in that way. So I'm sorry that that was your experience. <laughs> well, so well, let's talk about my, my position. Is the DH, should it be in both leagues? Or should it not be in either league? Well, I think it was inevitable that it was going to be in both leagues because uh, both the Players Association and ownership have some interest in this. Players Association understands that, generally speaking, designated hitters are higher paid than other, quote, position players. But also front offices were concerned, American League front offices and managers were concerned. Uh, not just with a competitive disadvantage uh, in interleague games because their pitchers were even less adept at the plate than National League pitchers, even when it came to laying down a sacrifice bunt. If a sacrifice bunt hasn't become extinct in baseball by this point, but also they were concerned about injuries. There were some injuries of American League pitchers running the bases during interleague games. So it was almost inevitable uh, that it was going to become universal. I'm not losing sleep over it, but I always have liked the National League game. Uh, You don't need a Ph.D. to make a double switch or decide to have the pitcher lay down a bunt or whatever it might be. But still, it it adds a strategic wrinkle to the game. It adds some nuance to the game, which I think is missing now that it's gone universal. He's Hall of Fame broadcaster Bob Costas. Yesterday I saw you on CNN with uh, John Brennan and uh, Brianna Keeler. Uh, I'm, I watch them frequently. I'm impressed with her from this standpoint. She'll have a guest on and get into a question and answer session, and then the guest may get very animated and may start to shout over her. To her credit, she handles things with such professionalism, and she's not afraid to shoot back on a regular basis. And, yeah. and Brennan, of course, is extremely bright, I think the combination is terrific. They're both very good. Since you 
mention Brianna, she's able to do something which, as you know, is not the easiest thing in broadcasting. She is able to be tough and persistent mm -hmm. without being abrasive or without browbeating somebody. She's smart as can be. She shows up prepared. When she does some of her essays, which she doesn't do every day, but maybe on average once or twice a week, they're well-researched and they're well-reasoned, whether you agree 100% with it or not. She's a real asset to CNN. Well, look, CNN's got one kind of a posture. Fox has another. MSNBC's got another. Uh, you've been in broadcasting a long time. Has the urge ever come to your mind where you'd like to get more political and get into more political discussion? Only when politics has overlapped uh, into sports, which happens more often than some people want to acknowledge. And when some people say stick to sports, what it always means is stick to sports if you're saying something I don't want to hear or I don't agree with. Because if you are saying something they want to hear, uh, then it's an open mic as far as they're concerned. But I have had some opportunities. I mention this only because you asked the question. I've had some opportunities to do things outside sports. And the only one I accepted was the late night talk show that I did in the 80s and, and through to the mid 90s that followed David Letterman on NBC. And maybe only three or 4% of the guests, if that, were sports guests. There were people from all walks of life, but it wasn't specifically a political show. It was entertainers, writers, comedians, directors, uh, just a, a wide and eclectic guest list, and I enjoyed doing that very much. I had some other opportunities to cross over into what you'd call straight news, and while those were nice offers, my heart was always in sports, so I stayed there. How would you rate your career? Lucky, uh, fulfilling, uh, not perfect, because nobody's perfect, but I think that I achieved a, a very large percentage of what I dreamed of achieving, not necessarily expected to achieve, uh, but a lot of things fell into place, and I think uh, that a fair-minded person would say it's a pretty good body of work. All right, tomorrow the U.S. Open begins. There's been a lot of controversy as it relates to the PGA Tour and the Live Tour, and uh, Jay Monahan, the commissioner of the PGA, has suspended a number of players from playing on the PGA Tour because they're playing in this Live Tour. Phil Mickelson, the most visible of all those players, uh, yesterday I saw an interview that he gave uh, where the question came up about uh, the Saudi Arabians, the uh, uh, Ishogi murder, and, and all the rest, and he he went very politically correct and said he feel he feels heartfelt about the people that died and so on. I don't want to hear that, Bob. I'll be honest with you. Uh, you want to make an excuse for make for playing for a lot of money? That's fine, but don't excuse what has been obvious to a lot of people. Well, let's unpack this. It may take a, a little bit longer than some of the other questions and answers that have preceded it in our conversation here. Um, the PGA's position, I'm sure that there are many honorable people within the hierarchy of the PGA who are honestly concerned about helping the Saudi government and uh, Mohammed bin Salman do uh, what's now called sports washing. Uh, it's what Qatar is doing by hosting the World Cup, what China did with the most recent Olympics, what Putin did with the Sochi Olympics in 2014, put uh, a more friendly face on an objectionable, to put it mildly, regime. So this is part of that. I'm sure that there are people at the PGA who have an honest concern with that. But being realistic, their primary concern is this live tour is a challenge to the PGA. But it's not the same kind of challenge. I said this yesterday 
on CNN. It's not the same kind of challenge as the ABA once presented to the NBA or the AFL to the NFL or the old World Hockey Association to the NHL. Uh, those were business competitive circumstances. The established leagues wanted the upstart leagues to go away and eventually they absorbed them either fully or uh, to some extent. Uh, so those were those were practical sports and, and business concerns. Here you have a moral concern. No country is perfect, but there are some countries and some regimes who are objectively and irrefutably beyond objectionable. They're horrific, and Saudi Arabia is one of them. Uh, now, does the U.S. government have to be involved with Saudi Arabia? Yeah, they're sitting on all the oil, mm. or at least much, much of the oil. But there's a difference between Biden, and this isn't a pro-Biden statement, going back on his earlier comment that he wanted to make Saudi Arabia a pariah state, but now political realities indicate that he has to speak with them. But that's different. You know, Nixon went and spoke to to. To China, China opened up right. in 1972. Historically, we've engaged with Russia and other regimes that we have problems with, but that's different than being in a direct business relationship with them. American athletes and athletes from around the country might have had problems with yet another Olympics being in Beijing, but they weren't directly benefiting in, in a direct business relationship with uh, the CCP. There, the, uh, the, the onus falls on the IOC falls on the IOC for putting the Olympics there or for going to Sochi in 2014. It's not a direct business relationship. This is. And you people have different views. I, I, some people have said to me, yeah, but the money is so great. And I think of a story, it's probably apocryphal, but it serves a purpose, that's attributed to Winston Churchill, who could be kind of salty, as you know. Uh, and Winston Churchill apparently says to some woman at some event, would you sleep with me for 10,000 pounds? And she says, well, I'll have to think about it. This is supposedly a pocketful story. He says, would you sleep with me for 100 pounds? Mr. Churchill or Mr. Prime Minister, what sort of woman do you think I am? And the answer supposedly was, we've already established what sort of woman you are. Now we're only quibbling over price. <laughs> so, you know, does it does it make it more understandable if it's 200 million? If it was only 10 million, would it be like, oh, come on, for just 10 million, you get in bed with these guys? But for 200 million, okay, I kind of see it. I don't know. <laughs> well, let, let's understand this. CBS, NBC, ABC, ESPN, uh, all televises a PGA Tour. Is there any thought that any American network would televise the Live Tour? An interesting question. Uh, there would be all kinds of political pressure. Uh, there'd be tremendous blowback. Plus, the, the networks generally don't like to offend their, quote, partners. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so they, they, don't, they wouldn't necessarily want to promote something, uh, leave all the moral questions and political questions aside, promote something that's in competition with their partners. So my, my guess would be that they would keep a, a very long distance from it. Uh, would you rather be called a broadcaster or an announcer? Broadcaster. The difference doesn't make that much of a difference to me. I don't, I'm not offended in any way when someone says announcer, but I think broadcaster implies something no pun intended, broader than that, with a greater range than that. And I hope that, generally speaking, that's been true of what I've done.
Bob Costas, uh, let me ask you this about the money that's being paid now to broadcasters is astounding. Uh, it started with Tony Romo. It's now moved on. Aikman and Joe Buck and so on. Uh, I'm just wondering, uh, this is the question a lot of people wonder, nobody tunes into games to hear a broadcaster, probably with one exception, all due respect intended to you, but John Madden was probably the one guy that people would tune in to hear. Can you name anybody else that would even come close to that yeah, level? Uh, yeah, uh, only a few. I think your general premise is correct. Charles Barkley makes a difference. He's not doing the game. But he's in the studio, and there are a lot of people who, uh, if it's just a regular season game, late at night, late on the East Coast, the Clippers are playing the Trailblazers, people will stay up late to watch Barkley, Shaq, Kenny Smith, and Ernie Johnson, but Barkley, they're all good, but Barkley is the key guy there. The difference, when we talk about these mega bucks being paid, all of it is attached to football. Not only is football the king in sports, it's now in a fractionalized broadcasting universe it's the only thing that cuts through. It's not just the biggest thing in sports. It's the biggest thing in all of television. You look at the 100 top-rated shows at the end of any year, and the overwhelming majority of them in the top 10 and through the, the top 100 are football games. And it's only in football, NFL games, and it's only in with the NFL where you have five platforms now, counting Amazon, five platforms pouring billions of dollars into the rights fees and the production fees. So when you look at it that way, even if paying $15 million a year to a play-by-play -play guy or an analyst seems crazy, it's really just a drop in that bucket when you consider the overall investment. And the way I put it before, it'd be like if you bought a suit that cost $5,000, but you weren't willing to spend a little bit extra on the shoes and the tie, you know? Can we definitely say that as good as they are, that Buck and Aikman move the, the ratings needle in an appreciable way? They might a little bit, but even if they don't, what you're paying for there is an aura. You're paying for prestige. It's People have said this through the years. Certain people come on the air. Al Michaels comes on the air. You know it's a big deal. Jim Nance comes on the air, even if it's not the Masters. Jim Nance doesn't do every golf tournament that CBS does. But when you hear his voice and you see him and he happens to be on what otherwise is just one of a dozen or so tournaments that isn't a major that uh, CBS televises, oh, but there's Jim Nance. It's a bigger deal. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can't objectively measure it in the ratings, but it feels that way. And that's what they're paying for. But it's only in football. No one's going to have to throw a benefit for Mike Breen. I'm sure he's being very well compensated. He just won the Emmy this year for best play-by-play -play right. guy, and he, and he deserved it. But Mike doesn't have the kind of leverage because, A, the NBA isn't as popular, and, B, you don't have the possibility of musical chairs because there aren't all these platforms that, that are looking to hire the top talent. If Doc Emmerich were still active, by acclamation, he was the best hockey announcer. Mm -hmm. Again, he'd be well compensated, but he wouldn't have the kind of opportunities and options that the top football announcers have. I think you and I can both agree that we're in a subjective business. Uh, oh, yeah. You may like somebody that I don't and vice versa. I happen to like Buck and Aikman as a combination. Uh, I like Chris Collinsworth. I mean, there's a number of guys that I like uh, that I feel I learned something from. Uh, but having said all of that, I, I look at uh, the business that we're in, uh, and you've achieved a, a, f a lot of notoriety and a lot of acclaim, deservedly so. Uh, but Jack Buck, I'll, I'll tell you, the I had one conversa two conversations in my life with Jack Buck. 
when CBS decided to make a change in the Monday Night Football radio booth, and I was lucky enough to be chosen along with Matt Millen to do the games, Jack Buck and Hank Stram were removed. Well, Jack was not very happy about it, as I imagine he shouldn't be unhappy. He should be unhappy about it. But I thought it was my place to pick up the phone and call Jack Buck, uh, and I did. And I said, Jack, I called you for one reason. Uh, I had uh, I was not part of the decision. They asked me to do it after they already had made the decision. And I want you to know that uh, the, the way I feel, I've always respected you. He said, I can't tell you how much I appreciated this phone call. We don't know each other that well, but you took the time to do it, and I really appreciate it. Now, you know well, Jack. Jack, the, the word class is thrown around sometimes a bit too liberally, but when attached to Jack Buck's name, it really applied. Um, I think part of the reason the national audience appreciated Jack Buck, but a huge part of the reason that the St. Louis audience or the larger region that comprises uh, the Cardinals fan base the reason they appreciated him so deeply wasn't just his tremendous skill as a broadcaster, but over time they got a feeling about him as a person, and that feeling was very, very positive. Uh, we're talking with, the, with Hall of Famer Bob Costas. Uh, you worked for NBC for a long time. Uh, was it your decision to leave? Well, a lot of times, I don't, I'm not trying to say that this is a tremendous concern to the average person. It's not that big of a deal, but since you asked me, uh, the way this has been reported in some places is just factually inaccurate. When Comcast took over NBC and Dick Ebersole, my longtime professional collaborator and close friend, quit NBC, um, my thought was I might leave at the same time because I'd been there quite a while and I was approaching 60 years of age. But the Comcast people came in uh, and they were very gracious to me. And they impressed upon me that this was the way they put it. You are to sports what Tom Brokaw is to news. And as we begin uh, our stewardship of NBC overall, we need you to be part of our sports operation. So we signed a deal in 2012 that specifically said I would do two more Olympics after that. The London Olympics were in 2012. That I would do the Sochi 2014 and Rio 2016. This was by my choice. They said, you can continue as long as you want. I said, no, 2016 will be the last Olympics. And it'll be the last season that I do Sunday night football. And the deal then included an emeritus clause, which they dubbed the Brokaw clause. So I would be to sports at that point in my career. I'd be to sports going forward from 2016, 2017 on what Brokaw had been to news. You're no longer the primary anchor. You're not working every week. But where there are circumstances where you would be helpful, historical perspectives, certain kinds of interviews, that kind of thing, that would be the involvement. So it was by my choice or mutual choice that uh, that, that was where my primary responsibilities would end. And then as we moved into the emeritus stage, some of what I had been saying for a long time, uh, misgivings about football, uh, certain critiques of the IOC, that sort of thing, um, might have created some tension, um, and it might have been a less perfect partnership than it had been. And so we mutually decided, hey, we've hit a point here of diminishing returns, um, and it's been such a great partnership, mostly predating Comcast, but also including Comcast, such a great partnership. Let's let's just end it here while we're still in a, in a really good place instead of having it uh, continue to 
move in a negative direction. Not that there was conflict, but it just wasn't quite as good a fit as it used to be. So we settled our deal. That's what we did. I didn't quit. They didn't fire me. They certainly didn't fire me. We settled our deal. Uh, it was reported somewhat differently in some places, including that I was upset because I wasn't hosting the Super Bowl. I guess it would have been in 2018. And I wasn't upset about that at all. Actually, my preferred role was to interview Roger Goodell, but Goodell would not agree to an interview, um, which I find objectionable. I like Roger Goodell as a person. I think it, on Super Bowl Sunday, if the network is carrying the Super Bowl and doing a six-hour pregame show, wants the commissioner to come on for a substantive interview that might go 15, 20 minutes, um, I think that's his obligation and he owes it to uh, football fans and he owns it, owes it to the network that's carrying the Super Bowl. That would have been my preferred role. Uh, when Goodell turned that down, I didn't care whether I was part of that uh, particular Super Bowl broadcast or not. And I really didn't think they needed me, so that was fine. Well, why did he turn down the interview? He, you know, he always has. Um, not at the beginning of his tenure. I did a, an interview with him on HBO when uh, he first became commissioner. I think that was around 2006. And I had two or three subsequent interviews with him on NBC. Uh, maybe, maybe, and I can't read his mind, I've always had a cordial relationship with Roger. I like him personally. Uh, maybe he felt that I was a bit more critical and less on board uh, with all things NFL than some network broadcasters. But in fairness, I don't think that he has done a significant sit-down interview on the Super Bowl with any of the networks that have carried it in a very long time. Um, so I can't say exactly why, but I would think that part of it would be um, some apprehension about my line of questioning. Now, I would never be unfair, at least unintentionally, and never be antagonistic, but I think I probably took a more journalistic approach at times than some of my colleagues would have. So maybe there was little upside in, in the view of the NFL uh, to having Rogers sit for an interview under those circumstances. Well, look, he, he works for, the, for ownership. You know that. Uh, $60 million a year or whatever he's getting paid is a nice price to do what the ownership says around the league. But he has been, he's come under criticism uh, for, for a lot of things. Uh, but then again, so's Rob Manfred come under criticism. Mm -hmm. You're in the position where you're open for criticism if you don't do things right. When it comes to Adam Silver, and this is just my opinion, Bob, I think Adam Silver is the most effective commissioner that there is in pro sports. Would you agree or disagree? He's very, very bright. Uh, and of course, he learned under David Stern, who was one of the most accomplished of all commissioners in American sports history. And although there's always going to be, to a certain extent, an adversarial relationship between employer and employees, I think the relationship between the league office and the players in the NBA is the most mutually respectful and beneficial of the four major sports. Uh, and even though David Stern was tough at times, there was a lockout in the late 1990s and whatnot, Generally speaking, that relationship has been the healthiest, and they're able to arrive at cooperative uh, at a cooperative place more often than not. So I give David and and Adam Stern, Adam Silver rather, a, a lot of credit for that. Uh, and to your earlier question, David Stern, who was whip smart, actually looked forward to my annual interviews with him mm. at the NBA Finals. He would kid me during the regular season. You get your questions ready, ready to go. <laughs> you know, he he enjoyed the little parrying uh, of it. Um, and he, he thought it was part of his responsibility. Uh, Gary Bettman, I've been less involved in the coverage of the NHL over the years, but Gary Bettman, always available. Bud Selig, who you mentioned earlier, was always available. 
you know, I think that generally speaking, that's part of a commissioner's responsibility. Now, there are so many outlets now. You can't go on every radio station in Amarillo that makes a request. But if you're talking about national outlets, especially the outlets that carry your game, uh, that's a way, if you're well prepared, uh, it's part of your obligation. That's a way that you address uh, your fan base, not just by making press releases, but by answering legitimate questions. Uh, You mentioned Barkley before. Who else made you laugh when you interviewed him? Oh, Jim Valvano was always, oh, yeah. always funny. I mean, I, I've had actual professional comics. So Billy Crystal said about Jim Valvano, <laughs> this guy could have been a comedian. Yep. I mean, his timing was so great, uh, not just with a quip, but his ability to roll out a story, tell an anecdote. Valvano was always great. The funniest guy that I can remember in my life was my high school basketball coach. We were playing for the city championship at Madison Square Garden against Franklin K. Lane from Queens. They had a front line, Bob, of 6'2", 6'3", 6'4". Our biggest guy was 6'1". So our coach, before the finals, was interviewed by the media, and the question came, what are you going to do about the height differential that your team faces? And my coach looked at him and he goes, our team is small, but they sure are slow. (laughs) <laughs> I said, I which, ne- which actually wasn't just funny. It also was was a good uh, a good suggestion that hey, if we do well, I must be brilliant, yeah. and if we don't do so yeah. well, what do you expect? This is the hand I've been dealt. Well, we we uh, we lost a guy named Billy Cunningham at mid year because he went to North Carolina. Uh, we went on and won the city championship by two points, thanks wow. to thanks to a guard named Charlie Sparky Donovan, who was five foot six, Bob, and he could dunk. <laughs> so he, he was like Spud Webb. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, only he never made it into the NBA because he had some other issues. But that aside, yeah. uh, do you recognize and are you comfortable with your celebrity? Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not a kind, it's a different kind of celebrity than mega celebrity. Uh, and if someone, you know, you're walking down the street, hey, Bob, good to see you. It's, it's often just like that. You just, you know, he's going one way, you're going the other. Nice to see you too. Have a good day. Or someone says, I appreciate your work. Uh, you think of someone who does really significant things, a teacher, a doctor, you know, the doctors at the grocery store in the checkout line, unless the, unless the person there knows him personally, no one says to the doctor, boy, you did a great job. You saved that kid's life. They say to you and me, I really enjoyed the broadcast. That's such an icing on the cake thing. Um, it's by the nature of what we do, not necessarily connected to merit. You hope you do a good job. You hope it's worthy of some respect or appreciation. But it's an extraordinary benefit that, you know, you're having a bad day, you're kind of dragging, and somebody says, and you've heard this sort of stuff through the years, my dad, who passed away a few years ago, he really enjoyed your work. Well, that makes your day. Sure. It lifts you up. So I have no problem with it whatsoever. I, I, I don't remember reading anything that was very critical of your work. Uh, having said that, when you read something, and how rare it may be, uh, do you react negatively? Do you, uh, do you sit and think about it, or you just dismiss it? If it's factually wrong, or I feel it's come from uh, a position of some malice or snark, I'm not necessarily doing anything about it, but I don't appreciate that. But if it's just a criticism, you know, I'm self-critical. Chances are, if I didn't do as good a job as I usually do, I'm aware of it myself before anybody says anything. So I have no problem 
with that. And now, you know, a lot of the feedback isn't from people who are uh, who have a byline and are accountable to editors or to a readership or whatever. A lot of it is just what's kind of out there, the flotsam and jetsam of social media or Twitter or whatever, which I don't pay much attention to. And I'm sure that there's some stuff out there that's valid, but a lot of it is, is uninformed, that it's just, you know, what it, someone's impression. So I'm sure there's stuff out there that's different than I like Howard David or I don't like Howard David, but that's just factually wrong. Um, so that, that would be bother me if I paid undue attention to it, but now there's not much you can do about it. Uh, I, you can't fight all the forces that are out there that are distorting our political conversations, distorting the culture to some extent. Uh, you know, we're all, we're all to one extent or another affected by that. Uh, and, all, and there's nothing you can do to turn it around, so just don't pay it undue attention. You said something to me a long time ago, and I never forgot it. We talked about today's broadcasters, and you said something that stayed with me. You said a lot of young broadcasters think that loud is better, and it's just loud. Yeah, yeah. Personality is not measured in decibel levels, or at least it shouldn't be. And there's a difference between a style all great broadcasters have a style. There's a difference between a style and a shtick. So, you know, and people think, again, people think that speaking bluntly is the same thing as speaking honestly. Some people think that. Or the person who has the most heated opinion or the hottest take is the most honest person or the person who cares the most. Well, that may work on debate shows and maybe it's clickbait or it's kind of the lifeblood of talk radio, be it political talk or sports talk. In most cases, not there are there are respectable exceptions, but that's generally true. But that's not the way that people I have respected, past and present, have approached it, and I hope it's not the way I approach it. Uh, before I let you go, um, I want to say it was not, maybe it was '96. The Braves were playing. Uh, Maybe the Twins in the World Series? You would remember? That would, be, that would have been 91. No, I, I'm going to go, okay, let's just say it was 91. Is that when Kirby Puckett knocked in the winning run? Yeah, hit a home run in game six. Jack Buck called it. Right. Uh, I happened to be, I was doing a f- college football game at Georgia, and uh, the World Series was in Atlanta, and I asked my boss if my wife and I could come to the game, and he worked it out that we got uh, – credentials to get into the, the, the CBS booth, which was great. And I had forgotten until I walked into the booth that Vin Scully was doing the World Series with Johnny Bench. On radio. On radio. Mm-hmm. And I'm a Brooklyn Dodger kid. I grew up with the Brooklyn Dodgers. Vin Scully was like a hero to me, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Well, my boss introduced me to Vin Scully and Johnny Bench. And I'm, I said, Vin, this is an enormous honor for me because I grew up a Brooklyn Dodger fan and I never forgot your calls as a Dodger and he said a lot of nice things and so on. I sat behind the two of them and watched them call the first couple of innings and I'm thinking to myself, this is the great Vin Scully. Nobody, nobody was better than Vin Scully. Mm-hmm. I think you'll agree. Oh yeah. Yeah. There are other great baseball announcers. Um, you know, there are p- plenty of people in the hall of fame uh, 
who weren't as good as Willie Mays or Babe Ruth. You know, <laughs> that doesn't mean they weren't great uh, at some level. So there are other great baseball announcers, but by consensus, the greatest of them all was Scully because of his mastery of the craft, mm. but also the expanse of his career, 67 years, and so much history. Uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers are one of the most memorable and significant teams in baseball history. Uh, and it's part of that era in New York with the three teams, the Giants, the Dodgers, and the Yankees, with memorable players and memorable circumstances. And then out west, they go, and almost right away, they go to L.A. in 1958. The Dodgers win the World Series in 59, 63, and 65, and get back to the World Series in 66. And West Coast fans are being introduced to Major League Baseball by Vin Scully. And all the road games, except for the ones against the Giants in San Francisco, and that's just nine games, all the road games are either Central Time or Eastern Time. So all those fans mm -hmm. are on the freeway mm -hmm. around 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, West Coast time, and they're listening to the great Vin Scully on the radio. The circumstances of Vin's career elevated how great he was. If somehow he was the voice of the Toledo Mudhens <laughs> and didn't want to leave Toledo, he would still have been recognized as great. People would be saying, have you ever heard this guy in Toledo? He's unbelievably great. But not only did his talent and his dedication and his professionalism bring him to a certain level, but the circumstances of his career highlighted all that to a maximum extent. There'll never be another like him, and there'll never be the circumstances that surrounded him uh, duplicated again either. Well, biggest fan of the Toledo Mudhens was Klinger for MASH. Of course, Jamie Parr. <laughs> I'm walking down the street in Manhattan on 43rd Street. I'm going to school at night and working during the day. And as I turn the corner on 43rd and Lex, there's a company called Chock Full of Nuts there. And who walks yeah. out of Chock Full of Nuts but Jackie Robinson? Yes. He passes me as he's walking down the street, and I'm thinking to myself, you idiot. Jackie Robinson was my hero as a kid. I wore 42 in my baseball uniform, 42 in my basketball uniform. He was my hero. And so I wake up and I go running after him down the street. I said, Mr. Robinson, you don't know me, but I'm a big, you, you are my hero when, I, when you were a Brooklyn Dodger, and I never forgot it. Bob, you know, he stood there and he talked to me for half an hour. Wow. I was blown away. So as we're getting ready to leave, he said, do you want me to sign something? And I had, all I had was, a, I had some money in my pocket. I said, yeah, this dollar bill. It's cherished today, as you can imagine. You still have it? Oh, yes. Oh yeah, that's your version. Remember the old shopkeepers? I don't. We don't see it much anymore. But the old shopkeepers around New York and probably elsewhere, they'd have framed the first dollar bill that they received when they opened up their deli or their yeah. shine parlor or whatever <laughs> it was. It'd be framed on the wall behind them. Um, that's kind of a forgotten time for the most part, but it registers with me. Uh, and uh, your time registered with me. I really appreciate it. I expected to go this long, but you're always an interesting guy to talk to, Bob. Always enjoyed your work, uh, and I appreciate uh, your time today. Thanks, and you stay safe. Thanks, Howard. Always a pleasure. Talk to you soon. You got it. Bye. He is Bob Costas, Hall of Famer. A true good guy. Aside from being a good guy, he's probably the most accomplished broadcaster that I've ever known. Uh, I admire his work. I admire his intelligence. I admire his versatility. He's done a lot of things. Deserves a ton of credit. Appreciate your time and watching and listening to Bob Costas. You stay safe. 
Thanks for being a part of Howard David Live. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.